Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. So thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Sarah Blackwell. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a clinical specialist in PGY1 RPD at Princeton Baptist Medical Center. Um, Today, I will be your host for today's episode, the therapeutic and psychosocial considerations for the care of gender minorities, part one. With me today are Braden Mischiolik, pronouns he, they, a community-based researcher and founder of the trans-led wellness organization Transcend the Binary, and Caleb Cogswell, pronouns they, them, a community-centered healthcare consultant with Transcend. Let's get into today's topic, the care of transgender and gender-diverse community, or persons who do not identify with the sex or gender assigned at birth, otherwise known as gender minorities. So we'll start with a big topic. What are the unique needs of this patient population? So there's going to be a lot of unique needs. And one of the first sticking points I had as a pharmacist coming in to learn about gender affirming care was having a really narrow vision of what a trans patient's needs would be. And it was only through my experience of my own transition, my own journey through this process of really beginning to understand how as a healthcare provider, I was missing these potential needs. Um, So looking at it through the lens of both a patient experience through my own life, as well as that lens of being a pharmacist really helped to start to identify a lot of these um, critical gaps that are missed. Um, So not only is it just, you know, are the environments affirming, which we'll go into a little bit later on, but it's also just understanding what are those extra things that come up. So the first thing is just breaking down that idea of what we have as far as a trans patient in our head, as far as that vision of remembering things like patients that are trans will come to us at any age, which means that, you know, we're seeing kids who have different needs, different, um, you know, we're not going to necessarily do pharmacotherapy in a child, but we need to know how to support that child. And, you know, teenagers are going to have different therapy compared to adults. And then we have the additional factors of we have, uh, you know, patients who are not 20, 30 coming in to get trans medicine. So how do we care for those patients? So looking at, we, you know, remembering that our population is just as diverse as every other population. And with that comes a lot more of those intersections that we see come up as well. And Braden can definitely speak to this stuff a lot more, but talking about the, um, you know, some of those more social factors that go into our unique patient needs besides the pharmacy side of it. Because I'll be straightforward, the the pharmacy side of gender affirming care is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It's really how do we start to incorporate all of these other factors that Braden can really speak to into our care to really provide that good environment and meet these needs of these patients. So Caleb, you mentioned that patients present in a lot of different ways. Can either of you go into more detail on that? Yeah, thank you for that, Sarah. This is Braden. I think you know, Kayla mentioned a lot of great stuff around, you know, how people present and they have different goals and people might be at different ages. Uh, what I wanted to, to really kind of highlight here is that gender is something that is very complex and it's something that we all experience. It's regardless of whether or not you feel comfortable with what's been assigned to you at birth or otherwise. Um, that's something that uh, 
it's going to fit for you. And, and if so, it, it's something that you might take for granted. Um, and then if you're trans or non-binary or don't fit that, it's something that's going to really potentially grind at you. We talk about dysphoria. We talk about euphoria. Um, not everyone who's trans has dysphoria, meaning that there's certain aspects of either it could be social dysphoria. So like different gendered expectations, different roles, things like that. Um, that might not fit, but it also might be that someone's body or aspects of how they're naturally developing, how that doesn't fit for them. So in terms of like, that's one component. And I think that's something that people are fairly familiar with that when it comes to presentation, we actually don't know on the basis of how someone presents what their gender identity is. And I think non-presumption is so key to working with this patient population. And I say that, and I have many just scenarios in my head, just kind of bubbling to the surface here. One is that you might be working with someone or interfacing with someone who has had low disclosure, meaning they haven't told anyone in their life or not many people or not presenting in their authentic gender. And you might never be able to tell. And there might be no clues for you to pick up on, meaning that this person has figured out how to be socially successful and perform the gender that was assigned to them. And so you might be working with someone who has high conformity to what you would expect. And that type of where they're at in their journey is a very isolated, uh, nervous, maybe there might be some repression going on too in terms of their gender. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of disconnected from other people, possibly from themselves. So that is, that is one type of situation that you might run into. You might also run into people who at very different places in their journey. So you might be working with someone who has established a family and they're going to be uh, you know, potentially disrupting what, what is their, their home life and those expectations and gender and all of that. So we see people who have, uh, you know, we talk about it in terms of the gender journey. So there's some individuals who might not tell anyone or, or uh, you know, take medical intervention until much later in life. So people are at all different varying stages. And when you, I think it, it is complicated as gender can be, because we haven't even touched on, you know, the non-binary presentations, you know, there, and all that really means is, well, it means a lot of things. <laughs> I don't mean to be reductionistic about it. Um, that means many different things. I think of non-binary as a umbrella term in a way that I think of trans as an umbrella term. And non-binary just essentially means that people don't fit in either one or, or box, but that can mean many different things. So someone might present or express themselves in a certain way that feels good to them. But what I want to drive home here is that there's no way of knowing what that expression means to that person without getting to know them. So the non-presumption I think is really important. If we were doing something that was visual, I would be identifying, you know, that I'm wearing a floral shirt and I would say, what do you think about me in terms of, what do you know about me in terms of, you know, what parts of myself that I understand as feminine or masculine or how I understand my, my gender? I mean, for the listeners out there, you're hearing my voice. So you're going to make assumptions based off of that. Um, and that's something that we're all wired to do. But when we're working with this population, it's the non-presumption. And that doesn't, that also means that 
it's not an on and off switch. It's not like we go into an LGBT setting and, oh, here's the trans people. <laughs> like, that's not how that works. We're everywhere. And as Caleb mentioned, we're a very intersectional community too. And I think that's something that's really important to highlight because there are trans people who are disabled. Uh, there are trans people who are of all different types of, you know, cultures uh, and different cultures can be different uh more gendered in certain ways, certain religions can be more gendered in certain ways in terms of roles and expectations. And all of these things are uh, what your patient population is navigating and, and dealing with. So thank you so much for that explanation, Brayden, and going into more detail. I think that is, it's very important to recognize the differences in terms of the assumptions that people make versus what a person is actually identifying as and how they actually view themselves as well as how they present themselves to the world. I'll add a little bit about my personal experience um, as a residency program director. I actually had a resident a few years ago that came out to us in the middle of their PGY1. They had presented as um, a woman throughout the time that we had known them as a student and as a resident. But when they decided to do a PGY2 with us, they decided to let us all in and really express their gender identity. And it really changed the way that we did things in our department and things that we try to do to make a welcoming environment, which I know we said we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Sarah, one thing that I, I love that you just mentioned is that uh, the student let you all in. I think that's a really beautiful way to uh, articulate it because that really is a vulnerable place and you're allowing people to see you for who you are. And there's a lot of trust that goes into that because with that, I mean, we're always surprised by the people that affirm and accept us and embrace us and those that don't, I mean, it's always a bit, it's a big stressor that I think we could, we could actually relate that stress to one of the barriers to care, uh, the internal barriers in terms of, not knowing how people will be perceived, whether they'll be supported. And there's there's tons that we could say around, um, you know, family systems, even navigating school, like our research, finding our strength actually touches on that as well. So you just mentioned your research, Braden. So tell me about what is community-led research and is it different from the community-based participatory research that we may all be familiar with? That's a, a great question. And there isn't a one like one size fits all answer to that because it can look many different ways. I can use finding our strength as an example. I think one of the overarching themes is it's almost like a consideration of of, of power in the research process. So when you think of community-based participatory, typically you have researchers, a part of an institution, they may or may not belong to the community. In many instances, they don't. Uh, and they have their research questions and they go and they get their funding and they figure out what their budget line items. And then they go and they recruit and they engage the community. Uh, and participatory could look like, you know, at an earlier stage before recruitment, maybe they're asking some community members to take a look at the survey and make sure that the language fits. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different places that input may be sought. 
But that's very different than community-led. Community-led is where the community is involved and the drivers, honestly, right from the get-go. And with Transcend, we sort of happenstance fell into research. Um, uh, In 2015, we basically started our first research initiative. Uh, I was interested in minority stress and I conceptualized a component of that theory, which was like worry around discrimination. We were seeing that with the people that we were working with, this like heightened vigilance, which thankfully there's a scale for. Um, And thanks to some fantastic researchers uh, who supported this interest in developing a survey, uh, it was completely unfunded. We did it. We wanted to do it, so we did it. And um, thank you to a wonderful program consultant, Nancy Lewis, who is a pharmacist passionate about public health. She roped in other researchers uh, from like the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan, another quality systems focused pharmacist researcher. Uh, and the best way to put to kind of dis- to articulate our dynamic is they were essentially the bumpers or the guide rails. So they may helped us make sure that we stayed in the lane. They lent their skills, their expertise. They consulted with us, almost like empowered consent through the research process. Like, hey, y'all, you can use this validated scale and here's the benefits of it. And you could adapt it. And here's some disadvantages. But also consider that how what you're getting is you're getting more meaningful insight into your own community and you're making it fit for you. So they're more neutral, empowering us with information, and we're the drivers through every stage of the research. So that begins with the concept, developing the objectives. Beyond the objectives, figuring out what instruments, like I just mentioned, the measures that you're going to use. Figuring out your re- research process uh, and implementation. But I think also very importantly is the later stages of research too. It's the analysis, it's the interpretation, and then finally the dissemination. And I think that's where you have a lot of, uh, when you approach research with power with, I believe you develop power within communities and you skill build. And it's this really beautiful symbiotic relationship because one of the amazing benefits of this is you're not only skill building with the community, but you're learning from them. And I think an important prong of community-led research that's well done is when you look at your population, your target population, and you bring them into the process, you you help support them and their goals for it. And you view them not as the beneficiaries of research, but as experts. So I think that's really important. Um, I, and I also think that our view on community-led research has also evolved because it's it's more than just say, I identify as someone who is in the trans community, SS Caleb. It's much more than that, because even though we have some overlapping identities with our community, our community is so diverse. And then we also have a very unique vantage point where we are providers of services. We we have like these dual roles. We have a very, and we're very well connected to the community and organizations. So it's really important to capture identities that we do not have, as well as the experiences of people who are far less connected to the community. So I think that that's really important. So when I, at the very beginning, I mentioned that, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Having community members who are leading and guiding, but there's also a lot of opportunities to get input from the community throughout. 
So what we do with Transcend the Binary is we layer onto our trans leadership with these info, input, feedback, gathering processes all throughout. So that could look like piloting a survey. It could look like cognitive interviews. It could look like doing focus groups right off the get-go. It could look like us leveraging data that has already been pulled from the community about interests and priorities and then running with that and then using input feedback gathering processes throughout the process, the analysis, interpretation, and of course, dissemination. Awesome. Thank you for that. So what should um, future research look like? So I know we're kind of answering this question out of order because we haven't hit on like the pharmacotherapy stuff yet. But I think this is it's one of those times of answering stuff out of order is perfectly fine because one of the uh, downsides to gender affirming medicine is that unfortunately the research out there is pretty limited right now. Um, we are starting to see it pick up more and more, but unfortunately we lost a lot of um, information that was available. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but there was an institute um, prior to the Nazi regime that had a ton of information about um, sexual reassignment surgery, um, just gender and sexual minority health in general. Um, and there were advanced techniques lost in that. So we kind of started over from square one in the late 40s. And because of that, we are now missing a lot of long-term data. We just are missing longitudinal studies. Um, you know, it's something that, you know, at 32, 33, I'm considered an elder in the trans community because there are so few of us who are this old. Um, so that's really where that direction of future research um, goes to is answering these unsolved questions about, you know, what are the long-term impacts? You know, it'd be really interesting to see what are the long-term impacts as far as protective benefits of hormone therapy um, in hormone-based cancers. You know, if someone has a family history of breast cancer, but they're on testosterone, does that give them any benefit? And we just don't have this information. Um, you know, we don't have information about what does HRT do in the long run to fertility. We have theories, but we aren't really seeing, you know, um, last time I uh, gave a continuing education talk, I think I found two or three studies maximum that talked about uh, resumption of menstrual cycle post years of testosterone therapy. And it was like, Ooh, this actually does raise questions. Maybe there is still fertility options available. And then what does that do for our IVF treatments? How does that change that up? So we have a lot of questions um, that can be answered and I think that is really where the community-based component comes in is because it's looking at the community and saying, what answers do you guys want? What do we need as trans people in order to make these long-term healthcare decisions that are fully informed? Um, because, you know, we can do the evidence-based therapy on, you know, how, how, do, how do all the meds work? How do, you know, the timelines, all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, if the question is, if I'm doing this now at 32, what does that mean for me when I'm 56? What does that mean when I'm 78 as I see my parents' age and my grandparents' age and see their long-term um, effects? You know, what am I doing that may impact that family factor there as well? So looking at that type of stuff, as well as then um, uh, looking more at the social impacts, you know, we know that out of the, um, there's a lot of research out of the Netherlands. I might be wrong on which European country. Thank you. Brayden's nodding. Yes. Um, the Dutch studies. Yes. Thank you. You know, that show that gender affirming healthcare is mental healthcare as well. So we need to see these long-term data about, you know, the if we institute gender affirming care earlier, are we seeing better long-term mental healthcare impacts and as well as those acute impacts, you know, are we seeing the improvements right away and long-term? So it really is asking the community, what is the direction that long-term 
research needs to go in, as well as answering some of these shorter, faster questions. Um, and simple stuff of like, you know, uh, has not been explicitly approved in trans men yet. It's got the explicit approval in cis um, individuals as well as trans women, but it doesn't have an explicit approval in trans men. So even just identifying these small gaps there, um, but really asking the community, what are the questions that you would like answered? And then when we have these opportunities to run research, it's actually, I got really excited about talking about research on ASHP because this is the group that gets to do it. Um, you know, asking the community, hey, we've got the money to do research. What should we actually research? And making sure that we're finding those needs and meeting those needs rather than just saying, ah, well, I have an idea. Let's run after that idea. Let's see if that idea actually helps people. Um, or can we can we make it work for more people with a starting point? Yeah, I have a couple, couple thoughts to that in terms of with research. I think it's really important to highlight an area where we are developing some longitudinal studies, and I think it's very important because it's a very salient topic right now. So absolutely, long-term studies from a health impact. What I want to focus on right now are those, those Dutch studies that Caleb had mentioned. So with these Dutch studies, there were youth who were receiving uh, treatment, whether it was puberty blockers or hormone treatment, uh, and eventually... Uh, they, they followed the cohort through looking and comparison pre-surgery one year to post-op. And what's really important is that we found that, or they found that, so there's really important Dutch studies that have followed a cohort through many milestones in the gender journey. So starting with puberty suppressants into hormone treatment, into uh, obtaining surgical intervention. Uh, and they found that there was decreased behavioral and emotional problems with youth, uh, decreased depression, increased general functioning. And while sometimes gender dysphoria didn't really change with like puberty suppressants and you know, body satisfaction, I think you would, you would kind of expect that, right? You're not taking any intervention to align your body. You're just delaying the things you don't want. Um, and then looking at a comparison between pre and post-op, there was decreased gender dysphoria, increased psychological functioning, and then well-being was about the same for other same age young adults in the general population. So these interventions, they matter. Um, what's also really important too is throughout these cohorts, so we're looking at 70, 50, and so forth. Um, and then there's some other studies too um, in terms of looking at like comparisons between people who are youth who social transitioned. There was another three studies that we'll share the references on, but essentially very few, like one out of 70, five out of 143, 16 out of 720. So we're talking about very few rates, discontinued care. And I think that's really important because discontinuation of care does not necessarily mean de-transitioning or anything to that effect. I know that that's like a really hot topic right now, but there's many people that don't want hormone treatment for the long run. They want low dose. They want it for a period of time. There are people who like myself would be in this category who thought of themselves and, and thought like, oh, I'm, I'm a man, right? And then realizing that, no, that actually doesn't fit either. That's not going backwards. I'm going forward. If I were to stop taking hormone, that would really change who I am. So it's all about what's going to help people feel aligned with themselves. And so 
when we're talking about like the fear of regret, I think that that's like a really important, those studies that I just mentioned, and we'll list the references too, are really important and that most, the vast majority continue care into adulthood. And the other thing too, is like uh, Dr. Diane Chain out of uh, Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine and Lori's Children's Hospital, they have a phenomenal uh, transgender youth program they're following and doing longitudinal studies as well. And they're corroborating these Dutch studies, which I think is really phenomenal and important. So there is a lot of data there. And Dr. Chen and, and her team have been working on something called like developmentally appropriate timeline for transitioning. So it's very much, uh, there's a lot of steps involved. It's a multidisciplinary effort. There's therapists you're working with parents you might be working with school administrators and teachers uh right now i've got in front of me like this gender identity workbook for kids and it's just full of you know draw the body as 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 draw your body as is draw the body you would like to have there's a lot of you know looking for continued consistency in terms of what children and youth are reporting and the the good news with puberty suppressants is you can you can start that and you can stop it is reversible All right. So that's all the time we have for today. We hope that you will join us for part two of this discussion. So thank you, Braden and Caleb, for joining us on Therapeutic Thursdays. If you haven't before, I encourage you to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit and Forums, such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialist and Scientist connect community where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thank you again for tuning in to this session of Therapeutic Thursdays. Join us here every Thursday where we will be talking to content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHPM.